Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Diana on today's show. Diana, could you just introduce yourself to my audience and let them know uh, just a little bit about you? Yes, hi. My name is Diana Winkler and uh, my ministry is DSW Ministries. I'm a singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate. I was an IFB church planner for 13 years. I'm also a survivor. I'm very passionate about helping people to heal from domestic violence, abuse, and trauma. Perfect. So what was your kind of introduction to the independent Baptist world? And maybe just give us a little bit of background of maybe your first exposure to the IFB in general. So unlike your other guests, I was not raised IFB. I was raised Catholic. I came from what you would call a normal family. I would not have called it an abusive family, but certainly not perfect. I'm the oldest of four children. And then uh, two step siblings were added when my dad remarried when I was 14. Now I knew my parents loved me, although they're strict. I was taught right from wrong. We were disciplined for major infringements like stealing, lying, almost setting the woods on fire. (laughs) Minor stuff, we were grounded. I went to Catholic school up to the fourth grade in Pennsylvania. So I knew Jesus. I knew he loved me. I knew I was a sinner, and I knew he died for me on the cross for my sins. I did all the sacraments. If those listening don't know much about the Catholic religion, it's basically a tradition-based work salvation. I tried to be a good Catholic, but in all honesty, I never knew for sure that if I would die, if I would have gone to heaven. 
We moved to Arizona when I was 10 years old. I then started public school. So when I was in the seventh grade, my guidance counselor had been grooming me for a year. And he was kind to me and a good listener and somebody I trusted. One day he uh, put his hand on my crotch and I stopped him and I stood up to leave and I was able to escape fortunately. My parents and the police and the school, they believed me right away, which made a huge difference in my recovery. My dad hired a detective to investigate even he was, my counselor was never prosecuted, though, mm. because none of the other girls in the school would admit that he was doing the same thing to them. But yeah, I would underline that I don't have a lot of damage from that experience because my parents, my parents believed me and supported me and never made me feel like I did anything wrong. So right. I was introduced to the IVB church when I was 13. My family went on vacation at uh, my cousin's house in Pennsylvania. So my cousins were IFB and we kids were allowed to go to vacation Bible school with my cousins. So that was the first time I was exposed to the Bible and salvation by grace. But boy, I had a lot of questions. I had thought, oh, the Catholic church was the one true church and they showed me in the Bible that I could not earn my way to heaven, that I had to ask Jesus to be my Savior. And when it came down to it, I didn't want to go to hell. So I decided that my cousins were telling me the truth. Right. So when everybody went to bed, I prayed on the bunk bed ladder for Jesus to come into my heart and save me. Now, I didn't feel any different or any warm fuzzies, but it was a sincere prayer. Right. Now the next morning, my cousins were very excited for me. They gave me a Bible, but they wouldn't baptize me without my parents' permission. Hmm. Now, my parents did not know <laughs> about my decision. They were not there. Getting saved did change my life. I was a sincere Christian. I never doubted my conversion, even in the worst of times. So I wasn't one of those people that got saved over and over again. That right. wasn't my experience. When my parents found out what happened at my cousin's, they sat me down and my dad said that my cousin's church was a cult. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not too far away from that. but So they took away my Bible, and they forbid me to contact my cousins again. So I was to go to the Catholic Church until I was 18 years old. So here I, I was really crushed. I was a, a new believer, and I had no one to disciple me in, in my new life in Christ. I was alone. So I went to the Catholic Church and lived a typical teenage life. I had a boyfriend. I went to the prom. I wore regular clothes. I went to the movies. I listened to all kinds of music. And I went to dance class. Now, it wasn't until I was a sophomore in high school that I, I met a Christian in my French class. 
she carried her Bible with her in a public school. Right. And that was in the 80s. So back in those days, you could carry a Bible to public school. <laughs> so I, I knew she was a Christian. Now, she wasn't an IFB. But anyway, I told her about me getting saved. And, and she gave me the living Bible. Mm. And she snuck me to church youth group on Wednesday nights, which is funny because most kids my age, they snuck out for doing drugs or something. Right. You know? Yeah. So she introduced me to some Christians, and I got a little bit of discipleship. I hid my living Bible from my mother. I turned 18, and my mother moved us kids back to Pennsylvania to be with family. My parents had divorced when I was 14. So I immediately started going to my cousin's church, which is Valley Forge Baptist Temple. That's Scott Wendell is the pastor there. Okay. So I was finally baptized, and they gave me a King James Bible (laughs) (laughs) and ripped the living Bible out of my hands. I did all the typical stuff that that comes with going to an IFB church. My mom wasn't too happy about me going to church almost every day. I was quite vocal and overly preachy to my family about my faith. So that didn't go over very well. (laughs) But uh, my memories of Valley Forge were happy ones. I, I remember being a balanced, loving church. I still love Pastor Wendell and the church family there. We had really good sermons, expository preaching, There was no screaming going on. In fact, none of the churches I was a part of, there wasn't that that, that screaming. In that church, pants on women wasn't really preached, but there was a dress code. If you were going to be in the choir or any leadership position, you had to abide by the dress code. Overall, the church was good to me and helped me through some really tough times. I attended my first missions conference there. And I surrendered to go into ministry at that time. Missionaries are treated like rock stars, so who wouldn't want to be a missionary? So then I I was headed to Bible college in the fall. If I was still living in Pennsylvania, I would probably consider going there again. I, I looked up their website recently, and they don't label themselves as IFB anymore. Mm. They say dress whatever you're comfortable in. They have an addictions ministry. They have a counseling ministry. They got sermons on there. They're really good sermons. I think the only issues that I had with that particular church was there was a couple in the church that wanted to help me with Bible college tuition and a car and pay for my voice lessons. They were really legalist. I wore some eyeliner and some blush. What I'm doing now, I don't look that much different than I did then. When I dyed my hair blonde, I had for a long time, and they told me my eye makeup was Egyptian, and my blonde hair was pagan, and they wanted me to change my hair back to brown, which is the color it is now. So I, you know, I asked the pastor what I should do, and he said I didn't look worldly. Since they're helping you out with school, you probably should do what they ask. I did what they asked. (laughs) There was one other family in the church that I hung out with that were kind of mentors to me, Joy and Larry Harris. 
they had seven children. The oldest, Kevin, was about a year younger than me, and he would wind up going to the same Bible college as me. They were like the perfect Christian family. They, it was like the Vaughn Trapp family. They all sang. <laughs> They're all like, they looked perfect to me anyway. And I came from a broken home, so it was a new experience hanging around a Christian family. Right. Sometimes I outstayed my welcome because there was a, I stayed so long and I, I ate their food all the time. <laughs> Sometimes I stayed, yeah, I stayed overnight and it was a strict house. Larry and I butted heads sometimes because I was still a baby Christian and I didn't know any better. But I told Kevin that, wow, it sure is awesome that you're raised in a Christian home. And right. he was like, it's a real challenge to live with six <laughs> siblings. But I didn't notice any, I did not notice any abuse when I was there. Mm-hmm. It was really well hidden. But Kevin went to school when I did, and then the rest of the family moved to Australia as missionaries. Mm -hmm. I lost touch with all of them after Bible college, but I recently found out on their son Jason's website that Larry had been raping his wife for, his wife Joy for 12 times a day. And Joy had told her story on 60 Minutes Australia Sins of the Father. I don't know if you've got that on your list, but... but um, sounds familiar, but I'm not sure. I'll write it down just in case. Yeah, she's told her whole story, so nothing that I'm saying is... I'm not saying anything that has already hasn't been out there. There's never been more scrutiny on the world's major religions, with a series of sex abuse scandals and cover-ups testing the most faithful. But there's an equally sinister doctrine being openly preached in small suburban churches scattered around Australia. They call themselves the Independent Baptists, a radical non-aligned movement with no connection to the mainstream Australian Baptist ministries. Under the extreme teachings of this church, women must submit to their husbands every whim. Tonight, a very brave victim of this evil doctrine has decided enough is enough. Joy Harris lived through hell by being married to Larry Harris a so-called Christian pastor who raped her several times a day. But Joy's also discovered this cruel dogma runs deep. Her own son, also a pastor, has now turned against her. It was really horrifying to find out that one of the tours not only got divorced, but was abusing his wife. And Jason had said on his website, he's a pastor in Australia, and he said there was child abuse going on as well. I knew that Larry believed in corporal punishment. The children were spanked. And I don't know if there was any other kind of abuse. But Kevin, who started a church in Adelaide, Australia, sided with his father, Mm. stating his wife, stating the wife is supposed to submit to her husband. And he denied his mother was being abused and she needs to repent. So his TV interview made him look like some crazy cult leader. Right. I hardly recognized him. Mm. They're questioning you. You're in a cult. You know, cults anything that's different than what I'm used to in my church. You've admitted that some people may see you as a cult. Sure, people will. People will throw that term out. And that makes you the cult leader. They might view it that way. But 
we're simply simple, old-fashioned, Bible-believing people. What does God say about calling in the real authorities if there's a problem within your group? Calling in the real authorities, you're talking about? The police. The police. Well, the, the scripture doesn't say to ring the police. But ask Kevin what the scripture says about men who rape their own wives, his own mother, and you'll struggle to get a straight answer. Do you consider your father has been justly treated? I do not. Why not? In this case, there was, there was disobedience to the Lord on both parts. But they will... Hang on, what do you mean both parts? She has not... Um, she has, she has not, uh, think, I think I'd rather just not explore that subject further. Yeah. So being raped was partly your mother's fault? No. That's what you've just told me. No, that's how you're understanding it, but that's not what I'm saying. Well, clear it up for me. You're telling me there's disobedience to God on both sides because your mother was raped. How do, you, how do you work that out? We don't need to get into the details of what did or did not take place. A lot of that was or was not proven. There was just an admission of guilt for one aspect. Other things were brought into it. For multiple rapes. Your father admitted to multiple rapes. I believe it was two. And your mother says there were many, many more. That's not a proven fact. You don't believe your father is guilty, do you? I believe my father is guilty, but he has expressed his remorse and his repentance. And that's enough for you? Should it not be? So all a rapist has to do effectively is repent, to say sorry. He who is without sin, Jesus said, let him pick up the first stone. Every one of us have done wrong things. That's the message of the gospel. Pastor Wendell was on the interview with 60 Minutes. I think he did really well. Yeah. Even though 60 Minutes really tried to trap him and make him look bad. I know him much better than that. Now, Joy didn't disclose the rapes to Pastor when, when she was on furlough. He was only aware of some verbal abuse and anger issues right. reported. But even so, uh, Pastor Wendell told them not to go back to Australia, but Larry wouldn't listen and told her um, and took uh, Joy back to Australia. Hmm. And of course, the, the rapes continued. She finally called the police and i think the pastor would have tried to help joy if she disclosed the rapes up front but when you're in the ministry you're afraid of scandal and you're afraid right. of losing everything it just didn't it didn't end well yeah. uh, kevin had told pastor wendell to stop supporting his church and i found out larry got remarried again which mm -hmm. is really disturbing to me. Uh, I really fear for the lady. 
So that, that's my first exposure to, to the IFB, mostly good. And then, then I, went to, I went to Bible college. Bible college that I went to was Fairfax Baptist Temple Missions Academy. That's in Fairfax, Virginia. Yeah, stop me if you have any questions. I know I, I talk no, you're fast, fine. but... <laughs> fine. No, you're moving right along, so I'm okay, just sitting know, there listening, taking it in. So. I left something out. Again, I, I had a really good experience at the Bible College. It was all very new and exciting for me because I wasn't raised in an IFB. Right. So it was kind of like Disney World because <laughs> yeah. I had never been surrounded by so many Christians at once. Right. I was hungry for... To study the Bible and learn everything. And I was sent there with an endorsement by Pastor Wendell. Everything seemed, everybody seemed to like me. We had great teachers that they taught us how to study the, study God's word and interpret the Bible for ourselves. That I'm looking back on, I was very thankful for that. None of the teachers really seemed to be extreme. You know, the dress code was typical. The dean's wife was always on me about the dress code. Virginia winters are cold. And you're supposed to wear a dress, of course. I took the bus to school, and I stood outside in the snow and waiting for the bus. So I would start wearing thermals under my dress, thermal, right. thermal pants, and I had uh, Wolverine boots on. And I would come into class like that. And she didn't like that. She expected me to wear pantyhose and high heel shoes. I kept explaining to her, high heels and pantyhose ain't going to cut it out there in 30 degrees. I was 19 years old. I was young and naive. I didn't really notice any abuse in there. But there were definitely some things that bothered me. Yeah. Yeah, everybody seemed like they were wearing a mask Hmm. or acting in a play. You weren't really allowed to complain or be real. If you had problems, you couldn't really be honest about them. My friend Kevin, he, he always said, it doesn't matter if your grandmother died yesterday. If somebody asks you how you're doing today, you always say, I'm doing great. Praise the Lord. God is good. <laughs> Maybe that's the truth. God is good. But you really could never be yourself and say, I'm really hurting because my grandmother died. And right. I appreciate you making that distinction too, like between abusive and then just things that really just were unpleasant or uncomfortable, because I think sometimes it is easy when we're looking back at our experience and we try to lump everything under the the label of abusive or of, oh, this was harmful. But there's a lot of things in that culture too, where people do things like that, like not be honest about their situation or encourage you to just say, bless God, I'm doing good. And we encourage you that way when they're doing the same thing. They are, they're trying to wear the mask too and and pretend that everything's good with them because it is an environment that does, and again, not all IFB churches, but I would say a good majority that I've been in are very heavy on how you present yourself. And so it's dressing up nicely, talking great about everything and not really, like you said, not being real. And so uh, I appreciate you just delineating the difference between the two because I think sometimes, I know for me, I struggle with, what's abusive and then what just rubbed me the wrong way. And both of those things together keep me out of these churches, but it is important to make a distinction because I think there's a lot of unintentional uh, or unintentionally harmful things that happen in these environments as well. Exactly. Of course you're in a little 
different part of your journey than I am. I'm uh, much farther along in the healing process. So I've had a, a chance to look back on some things. Yeah. But going to school was, was typical Bible college stuff. There was never any rest. The common thing was burnout is a cop out. <laughs> we didn't get a day off. You work during the day, you go to school at night, you do the Wednesday night service, Thursday night visitation, Saturday bus visitation. It was not a day of rest for us. Mm-hmm. You had bus ministry, Sunday school, children's church, take the kids home, go home oh. and eat lunch. Then you go to choir practice. Then you got the evening service. And then sometimes you had a singles afterglow or something. And then I have to go home at 10 o'clock at night and do homework. Right. So it was like that over and over again. Yeah, yeah that's, that's typical Bible college experience. But, oh. you know, I thought the, the church was good. Pastor Bud Calvert, he was, the preaching was expository and Bible-centered. The music was very good. Had a great choir and orchestra. Again, a lot of church members helped me. I had a lot of hard times in college. I lost my job. I needed a place to live. I went through a car accident. But the pastor was never really about issues like other churches were. The only time he, it's only a few times that I remember that he talked about issues was he preached against Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael's, Michael Landon's long hair, can you imagine? And he also preached against Jesus Christ Superstar once. And yeah. my now ex-husband decided to go and tell Bud Calvert after the service that he was wrong about Jesus Christ Superstar. And <laughs> I thought, oh, this is going to be bad. Yeah. And of course, Calvert replies, I don't stand corrected. And right. I wanted to fall through a hole in the floor. I just stood there, and no. Bud Calvert made him throw out all of his secular music and movies, right. which that was crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that amount of the fact that there's that amount of control is pretty crazy. And just for those listening too, just to just to give a call back to a previous episode, like we really dove into um, Bud Calvert on a previous episode of the show. I'll, I'll make sure I link to it in the show notes, but there was quite a lot going on behind the scenes, even I'm assuming even during this time, I don't know what the time frame would have been, but um, definitely check the show notes and, and link back to that episode uh, if you want to get more info there. But, yeah, I, I definitely felt Bud was racist. That I did know about him. Before I met my ex-husband, I was engaged to somebody in the Spanish church and I showed him my ring. And all he said was, thanks for telling me, which was awkward. And his gracious wife stepped in and said, congratulations. And Bud believed that people should stick with their own kind, but he refused to marry a black and white couple at the church. They had to go get married at a Presbyterian church down the street. Really? He's like a BJU graduate, so that's what you expect from from that. But yes, as you were mentioning, Becky, I was in the choir and in the Spanish church. I started formal voice training with Becky. Bud Calvert's son, Troy, was her husband, the pastor of the Spanish church. So yeah, I had listened to Becky telling her story of abuse on your podcast and and I was so devastated. I, mm. I cried through the whole thing. And yeah. I believed every word she said about her story because she was all alone with no one she could confide in. 
Yeah, she had the Lord, but I know what it's like every day to plead to God to change my husband and nothing happens. Now, I was at her home every week for voice and piano lessons, and I had no idea that she was being sexually abused by Bud. Now, I would have been there for her if I knew. Yeah. I would have done anything for her. She was my pastor's wife. She was a mentor to me and a good friend. And I would come and tell her all my 19-year-old petty problems. Looking back, I never asked if she had any problems. She is so unselfish and a good listener. That's her way. In my eyes, she had the perfect life on the outside. She was you know, raised in a Christian home. She was married to a pastor. She was beautiful, or she is beautiful. (laughs) She's an accomplished musician. She had perfect kids, and her house was always spotless. Right. And fessed to her one time that I was jealous of her. Yeah. She did tell me that my husband expects too much from me, and she can never measure up to her father-in-law standards, no matter how hard she tried. Bud's abuse was well hidden. We were never allowed to be alone with anyone the opposite sex unless it was a family member. It was a perfect cover. No one would suspect him. I remember going to voice lessons when she had lost her voice. She Mm -hmm. mentioned that on your podcast. And I remember her telling me she had to get vocal rehab lessons. Now, she told me it was from the hormone fluctuations from pregnancy. Right. She, I think she just had Nathan, I think. I didn't know it was from the trauma she was going through. Yeah. I was going through my own abuse with my husband after I got married. And I kept thinking, maybe if I would have confided in her, then maybe she would have told me about her abuse. At least we would have had each other. Yeah, I knew exactly how she felt about being trapped in a marriage you could not escape. You're, you have a fear of losing everything, your ministry. Here's the big one, thinking no one would believe you. Yeah. What she said about being a slave and not having any choices in life, being exhausted, going through the depression. I knew all of that was true because I had gone through the depression and all that stuff myself with planning churches and in my own marriage. But I thought that it was really weird that Bud Calvert and Ed Hembry, which Ed Hembry is um, Becky's father, they would get up there on the pulpit and preach on how they've arranged their kids' marriages. And they used Isaac and Rebecca in the story in the Old Testament to back it up. I just thought that was just a little odd. America, we don't have arranged marriages. That's the Middle East or India. Who does that to their kids? Yeah. Yeah. I never had any real problems with Troy personally, but when we were in the bus ministry, there was a kid in the bus ministry and in the Spanish church that he wanted to be a preacher boy. And this kid had just like enough money to either buy a car or buy a suit and tie. Hmm. Troy pressured him to go buy the suit and tie so he would fit the image of being a, a, a preacher boy. I mean, I yeah. thought that was insane. But anyway, that was my experience with 
Fairfax, where I met my now ex-husband. <laughs> so I met my ex at Ed Valley Forge Baptist Temple during school break. Now he heard me sing a solo at church and he wanted to meet me. So he had the pastor introduce us. He was a sound engineer and a record producer. And he said he wanted to record an album for me, which was exciting. We dated for about six months before we got married. Now, he came from a good family, a good Catholic upbringing, great siblings, a loving home, close extended family. His parents were Ward and June Cleaver. But while they were, while we were dating, there were definitely some red flags, like anger issues, mood swings, manipulation and control. My 20-year-old self didn't spot them. My, my mom and my sister, though, did and didn't like him. So he moved down to uh, Virginia to go to Bible college with me. And I remember he got into a fight with his mom when the truck broke down on the way. So he's like swearing at her on the side of the road and I'm talking with him on the phone and pointing out how bad his attitude was and his language was against his mother. And he's telling me my timing sucked and don't preach at him right now. And, yeah, you know, I was at his parents' house visiting on one on spring break and I told him something very personal about myself. You know, we we weren't even engaged yet, but he called me names and flipped out and drove around the block. Hmm. So I was wondering what, what was going on. So the next day was my birthday. We went to some fancy restaurant and he apologized for the previous incidents. And that night he proposed with a wedding ring. And like a fool, I accepted. We were abstinent until we got married and went through premarital counseling. His mother didn't think a fire hall wedding was good enough for her family, so she insisted on paying for the wedding. So even if I had doubts about the marriage, I thought it was too late to back out now because yeah. they paid $35,000 on this reception. So we got married on winter break my junior year, and he dropped out of Bible college because he thought he was, he knew better than the teachers did. Yeah. But it was a big shock when the marriage became abusive right away. He was very arrogant. Hmm. He said that he had all this experience with women and knew my body better than I did. The first rule in marriage is not to compare your wife's body to all the other women you've slept right. with. Now, I tried to show him how my body worked, but he didn't want to listen. I'm trying to keep it PG here. <laughs> he got so angry at me for helping him. He left the bed and breakfast we were at, and he started driving around town. I was left behind crying. And pretty much at that point, I knew that I had made a mistake in marrying this guy. Yeah. But I, I wanted to be true to the vows that I made. I thought, I'm just going to have to live with this. And he came back eventually from driving around town. 
but for the rest of the time, he was complaining about having to um, have sex again. Now, we got back from our honeymoon. It was like at least two weeks, and we hadn't been intimate at all. Wow. I would walk around my our apartment in a nightgown and but he would all he would say was you're blocking the football game you're blocking the set yeah. uh, his family was making newlywed jokes and asking why i wasn't pregnant yet yeah do you ever see my big fat greek wedding that was pretty much what my in-laws were like yeah a typical Italian family. When I wanted to scream at them, do you actually need a sex life to have a baby? Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't say anything. Our first anniversary came around and it was about the same thing. We were, we were snowed in a bed and breakfast and it was 36 inches of snow in Lancaster, PA. Yeah. And all he did was complain about being in stuck, being stuck inside instead of being happy spending it with me. Yeah. But I wound up playing piano and singing with the other guests and reading books in the library. So after we, we started our new our life together, we're, we were serving in the ministry full-time as missionaries after I graduated from college. So I was serving the Lord. It was definitely different behind closed doors. Mike was a, a different person in church than he was at home. It was like, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah. At home, he's verbally abusive, disrespectful, and controlling, and angry. He would have these mood swings every day. So I, I didn't know what mood he was going to be in when I woke up. Right. I was you know, walking on eggshells, not knowing what would set him off. He was in the habit of humiliating me in public, at restaurants, at church, in front of his family or my family. He said I hated his family. Mm. I actually loved his family. I just needed some boundaries because they smothered me a little bit. You know, uh, my in-laws paid for a family vacation at a resort in San Diego that my husband ruined. Mm. You know, he complained the whole time. He picked fights and he threatened to fly back home to Phoenix that night. And I had to have his dad talk him out of it. Hmm. He would uh, complain about me being in choir practice too long. He accused me of having an affair with the choir director. He would have, when I'd have to sing at church, uh, I've got videos of me singing some supposedly, it's supposed to be a happy song with a deadpan face. Hey. Because before we go into church, that's when he would decide he would get into a fight with me. And you can see them on my YouTube channel of hmm. Easter Sunday. He's risen, and I'm just, I, I have no smile on my face or anything. Right. But that's how it was. Blew up at me over the pettiest things like there's not enough gas in the car, there's no water in the fridge, the grocery bill's too high, I was spending too much money on Christmas gifts, I didn't make enough money. Now, he said that I was the one who made him act this way. The hmm. language he would use it towards me would make a sailor blush. The, the burden was placed on me to make the money. He, yeah. he had his own business in selling video. He didn't get a consistent income. Hmm. So, and he would have me apply for jobs. 
jobs that I wasn't even qualified for. Right. The typical abusive home was, I was told to shut up and submit whenever I would question his bad decisions, right. um, like bankruptcy or his business or moving all the time, changing church all the time. I was right. kept in the dark about our finances. We were on the brink of bankruptcy and I had no idea. I was given an allowance to spend, but he could spend whatever he wanted, right. which is that's financial abuse. Yeah. You know, and I would save some of my allowance and he knew I had some leftover money and he would tell me that I was hoarding money and he'd get angry for that. He would buy a car for me to drive, even though I told him I didn't want the car. Yeah. So he got me this car, it didn't lock from the inside. It had those mechanical seat belts that went across from the 90s. Right. <laughs> uh, the seat had wires poking out of it, and it was a stick shift. Most <laughs> hate stick shifts. He got to drive the brand new Passat. No. I drove around the clunker. And this is all the tip of the iceberg stuff, but at one point I was thinking of either faking my death or disappearing. Hmm. That's pretty severe, yes. When my 30th birthday came and my parents threw me a surprise party with my extended family, I got a lot of gifts and money. My family's pretty generous. And in front of my family, my husband took the money that I got and said that he was going to hold it for safekeeping like I was a kindergartner. Yeah. And my cousin saw this and he took me into the garage And he gave me this huge wad of cash, afraid that I was never going to see that money. Hmm. And I thought after that party that my family really loved me and I couldn't disappear on them. I would have to learn to deal with whatever it is given. So I would decide to volunteer to work late, volunteer at church, go to the library, go to exercise class, just to avoid coming home. My husband was addicted to TV and sports of every kind. Right. No, he never hit me. And that's the big thing is he never hit me. He would throw things, slam doors, kick things. Yeah. I did tell him if he ever did try to hit me that I would fight him, even though he's bigger and stronger than I was. Yeah. I would fight back even if I lost. Now, I don't know if that's that had anything to do with him never hitting me, but we continue to assist people in planting lots of churches in several states, stateside. I'm only going to mention the ones that, you know, were significant at this point in most part of my abuse story. We moved to Gloucester City, New Jersey to help with a youth group there. That was in the inner city, and that was really legalistic preaching. The typical, I think it was a John R. Rice clan type of church, but they had the whole no pants on women, no earrings on men. We didn't have any privacy. We lived about a mile from the church, and the church staff was always looking in our windows and wondering why we didn't come to service that day or whatever. Music was terrible. So I was the only one that that could sing or hold a pitch anyway at the church. So they would pull me up on the stage at a moment's notice to sing. 
so I started teaching voice lessons to the people at, at the church. Right. That was the start of that. Now the women, they would go, we would go soul winning, soul winning during the day. And we would get on this little bus and go into Camden. Now, I don't know if Camden, New Jersey, hmm. that's like the murder capital of the world. Hmm. There's bullets whizzing. There's drug deals going on. There's anyway, the church is a mile from Camden and we used to bus kids into church from there. Hmm. And so the girls, the, the ladies, we would go all go soul winning and we get this bus that didn't have enough gas in it and no men were going with us. And it's a very dangerous part of town. And I would tell the pastor's wife, what are we doing? Why, this is dangerous. Why don't we take some precautions? And she kept, she would say the whole, just have faith. God will protect us. And yeah, um, the preacher and my husband would go out knocking on doors too. And he would say to me, yeah, there were bullets flying over our heads and we were hiding behind cars. And, but that was the mentality. The typical TV is sin. Women weren't allowed to work. Yeah. I I didn't have children. I had gotten a job at FedEx. That was a really great paying job. And we had a testimony Sunday. And they, oh, stand up if you got a testimony. And I said, oh, yeah, I got something. The Lord provided me a job to work. And I got a job at FedEx. And it pays really good money. And blah, blah, blah. And there were crickets. Hmm. You could have heard a pin drop. Nobody said amen. Nobody clapped. Nothing. And I just sat back down again. I was just like, they had a ladies. You couldn't wear pants, of course. I was sent home to change clothes once because I had culottes on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they had Give It All Sunday. Have you ever heard of Give It All Sunday? I've heard similar things, but I'm assuming it's when you're giving like actual jewelry and like people are giving their wedding bands and that, is it one of those types of fundraiser Sundays? It was this kind of version. It was, you gave your entire paycheck Mm. to, to the church. Now this was a poor church. Yeah. So you had this Sunday in this poor church and he would the pastor would stand up there and say, we would be up there two hours. Come forward and, and pledge to give it all Sunday. And my husband and I wouldn't, wouldn't do it because we already knew that God gave us the tithe. And we weren't going to be able to tell the, the landlord and the electric company <laughs> that I don't have money to pay the bills this month because I gave it to the church. So that was insane. You can't be the Holy Spirit for people. God gives you this spiritual discernment. And I felt that that a lot of that's going on. They would tell you how to live your life. But that was a that was a dark time for me because my husband was manipulating me a lot and he tried to manipulate me by attempting suicide because he didn't get his way. Yeah. Which it that particular time it was, he didn't get more pie. Now, he, he said that he was going to go upstairs and put a gun to his head because he had nothing to live for. Now, I followed him up the stairs with all these crazy thoughts going through my head. I didn't know what I would find when I got up there. He had a gun to his head. 
And it, it took me an hour to get him to put that gun down. Mm. And I wasn't sure if, if he was going to turn the gun on me or mm. actually go through with killing himself. So after that, I was like, I should have gotten him some help, but I didn't. I, I, I told, um, I told my, I told Pastor Wendell because I was so shook up by that. But he said, well, you should have him step down from ministry. Of course, my, my husband would not step down. The threat of violence is abuse also. Even if he didn't pull the trigger, that is still very traumatizing to somebody. Right. Yeah, you know? definitely. <laughs> but yeah, he, he didn't stop the ministry. He was still accusing me of having affairs, everybody from the choir director to the aerobics instructor to the librarian. He tracked me whenever I left the house. Hmm. Um, now, in 1999, we moved to Arizona, where my dad lived. And one of the churches we were a part of, Saguaro Hills, I was very involved in the music there, in the choir, teaching boys. And I was hired on staff as the secretary there, which was not a very positive experience. I don't think the pastor's wife liked me at all. Hmm. Now, my husband used to have his mood swings and temper tantrums in the church. It always made me look bad because I'm connected to him. Right. Yeah, not a very, not a very good environment for me. Um, I was eventually fired from the job. Supposedly because I shared confidential information from the office because I was right across from the pastor's office. But I never shared anything, uh, even with my husband, because he used to ask me all the time. I saw so-and-so going into the pastor's office. What was that about? I'm like, I can't tell you. That's private and confidential. But I think that they let me go because they didn't want to deal with, they didn't want to deal with my husband. He was really, as you can see, a difficult man to deal with. The next church we were at was Philadelphia Baptist Church is the name after the, the biblical city of Philadelphia. Pastor Dan started a church in a shopping mall, and he was a good Bible teacher, but he didn't treat his wife very well. He would always tell her, get the bit out of your mouth, woman. Hmm. He would buy a car without her say-so. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Pack up and move at a moment's notice when yeah. wherever he felt like going. My ex was doing the same thing. His wife was, was very meek and quiet, very submissive. And whenever I had opinion in that church, somebody in the church would tell my husband, you need to control your wife because <laughs> I have an opinion. So that was a negative part of my life. My husband would keep me separated from my family. My sister moved to France in 99. I was not allowed to go visit her because he didn't like her. Yeah. She didn't like him. And my husband didn't like the French government, whatever. <laughs> so he wouldn't, he wouldn't let me communicate with her either. It was seven years before I saw or spoke to my sister. Wow. At my cousin's wedding, I wore bottle cap glasses since the seventh grade. He wouldn't let me get LASIK surgery because he said that the doctors would butcher my eyes, which <laughs> is totally ridiculous. Yeah. We 
next helped a church start a church in a uh, rich retirement town Carlton Hills Pastor Ty was not sent by his home church never went to Bible college he was fighting hepatitis and so he started a church out of the back of his house now in that town you're not allowed to put up any signs in town about your church especially a house church Right. And, and, and there were Southern Baptist churches in the town. There were Catholic churches, and, but there wasn't any IFB. So the pastor had this billboard on the back of his truck. And it's, you're going to hell unless you repent and hellfire and brimstone. It was really in your face. Come to Jesus and repent. Uh, so he was the laughing stock of the whole neighborhood. He never talked about anything except Jesus. Yeah, I like to talk about Jesus too, but he wouldn't talk about sports. He wouldn't talk about current events or TV shows. It was always a really hard time to have any small talk with the guy. Hmm. And uh, we would bring in guests, including my parents. Yeah. The church was really small. It's five people. But he scared them away with these drawn out invitations and about those invitations yeah there's five of us in the church three of us went to bible college and the other two they were saved or yeah. they expressed that they were saved but the pastor kept acting like he was the only one that was saved for sure yeah maybe you think you're you were only saved maybe you might have been saved but Maybe you weren't, so maybe you should come forward. You've heard yeah. that before. Come come forward, but I would never go forward. There was no real Bible teaching. It was him preaching on salvation every week. And so it was the same typical thing. I didn't like cool lots. I was using Becky's tracks for singing mm -hmm. because I was the only one that could sing or play the piano. And he told me he didn't want me using those anymore. Hmm. And for those that aren't familiar with Becky's music, she had orchestra, full orchestra, and very conservative tracks. Yeah. So me and the pastor were bumping heads because he wasn't going to let me use any tracks anymore. And I pushed back on that. I said, how about you give me a chapter and a verse why I can't use those tracks? And he yeah. just yelled at me and said, I don't need to give you a chapter and verse. You just need to obey. <laughs> okay, fine. Okay. I'm not doing the music anymore. You don't have to give me any explanation, but my husband and I went on vacation and we went to a church on vacation, of course. And we realized how bad the preaching had been and all the stuff that had been going on. And so we, we decided to tell him that we were leaving when we got back. So for, fast forward to our 12th anniversary. We went to Jerome for the weekend. That's like a ghost town, artsy-fartsy kind of a place. And we were walking around the town, and he was in so much pain, he couldn't even walk. So we went to the doctor the next day, and my, the doctor told him he might have VD, a venereal disease, because he had some sort of discharge. And the doctor told my husband that I was the one who gave it to him. Now, the doctor didn't even give him any tests. But my husband comes home from the doctor's office accusing me of giving him a venereal disease. I was, I was ready to go punch the doctor. 
<laughs> so we had to wait for the test to come back. Now, this is what my husband told me. He had diabetes, that his sugar was so high that it was in his urine and his blood. But I'm, I'm not really sure I believe that. He wouldn't, he wouldn't give me copies of the test results. He would tell me stuff like, if I ever gained weight, he didn't think that he could get turned on by me anymore. I was 120 pounds my whole married life. And he was 210 pounds. Now, he wanted to have kids, but I told him, I can't guarantee I'm going to lose the weight afterwards. And at this point, 12 years of marriage, I didn't want to bring children into this mess at all. He was using sex as a weapon against me, which usually that's reversed. He would sleep on the couch instead of our bed. The only time he was interested in sex was in the middle of the night when I was asleep. It isn't really right to have sex with somebody when you're sleeping. Or when we went to his parents' house, he wanted his parents who were in the next room to think that we were happily married. So he would always want to be intimate then. And that was insulting to me. Yeah. This is the only time he held my hand too. We were, we went to the mall with his parents and he's like grabbing my hand. I'm like, what are you you doing? You never hold my hand. And then there was the pity sex. This is what he would do. Come into my, come into the room and say, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to have sex. So you don't cheat on me. And so do you want to have a romantic evening? No, just don't, don't bother. That's insulting to me. He would say that I would put too much pressure on him to have sex. Yeah. Now, I didn't think that once a week was too much, but he would call me a nympho. Most men I knew wanted sex every day with their wives, especially newlyweds, but not him. Once a month was fine with him. He said, oh, this is making me so angry. He would tell me, because I would confront him on this, he would tell me, you didn't submit to me today, so you don't get sex then. You keep arguing and fighting with me so you don't get any sex. And I suspected that maybe he was gay Hmm. because these things happening. And I approached him about that, but he denied it. I would ask some of my trusted male friends, you know, what's wrong with me? Am I doing something wrong? And my friends would tell me, no, there's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with him. Yeah. I would go on these women's retreats with the church, and then they were a joke because you know what they would talk about? The only thing they would talk about is, oh, you need to be sexually available for your husband and right. make sure you submit. Yeah. To this day, I cannot go to a woman's retreat because of that. I'm yeah. forever scarred. But he, this is the strange thing, is that he had his own, he had his own business, commercial sound and video. Mm-hmm. He had clients in swingers, bars, and gay clubs. Hmm. And I would ask him, why would a preacher even go into places like that? Yeah. Now, he said, they pay really well. Hmm. And then he would say, oh, I'm telling them about Jesus. 
Now, I wasn't sure if I believed him because, okay, yeah. you're a man, you're not sleeping with your own wife, and you're hanging out in a gay bar and swinger clubs. So, you know, but he, he wouldn't admit it. He was never, never supportive of my music ministry, even though that's how we met. Yeah. He re-recorded and produced everybody else's albums except mine. He said, no one would ever listen to my voice and piano. No one wants to, no one wants to hear you. And it was just another way to control me. Every year I would ask for my album to be done, and every year I never got it. Yeah. So the church that I was a part of when, we made the when I made the decision to leave, Gospel Light, was a medium-sized church, and I was in the bus ministry and children's church. And the preaching was pretty good. It was, I was playing the piano there, but the pastor would not let me sing in the choir or do any solos unless I was at every service, and, and I went soul winning. Yeah. Now, I had to work Wednesday, so I couldn't go. And so he wouldn't let me be in the in the choir or the or sing any solos, which okay, fine. And I, I never told anybody in the church that I was leaving my husband or I was thinking of leaving. Yeah. Um, now the pastor's wife said she knew something was wrong, but she never said anything to me. I I felt trapped and alone and bitter. We were barely roommates, not marriage partners. Yeah. You know, I was mad at the church and my husband, and I was mad at God. And I stopped praying because I didn't think I didn't think I was listening. Yeah. I stopped reading my Bible. I was, but I was still serving the Lord at church. I was putting on a Christian face in public and pretending everything was okay. Right. Only my closest friends knew what I was going through. I think three. Yeah. And many asked me why I didn't leave him. Why did you wait 13 years to leave him? It's because the church would not allow divorce. Yeah. Divorced people are treated like outcasts. Yeah. You're not allowed to serve in the church. So I was falling into a depression, and I knew nobody was going to help me. I even dragged my husband to three different marriage counselors to get help. Now, this was Nuthetic Counseling. Nuthetic Counseling is you only use the Bible to, to do the counseling. Right. Uh, the pastors would tell me that if I would just submit to my husband, then I wouldn't have any marriage problems. Any counselor that would have any real solutions, my husband would sit there with his arms folded and not do his homework and say he doesn't want to be preached at or have Bible verses quoted to him. Yeah. So the turning point of our, of our marriage was our 13th anniversary came and it was a disaster, hmm. a futile attempt at intimacy. I, we had butted in bed by accident and we had this huge fight and it was horrible. And the next day I woke up so depressed and I thought, I cannot live another day like this. I had a few thoughts running through my head. I could commit suicide. I could fake my death. I could smother him with a pillow. Or I could leave. And those are 
pretty horrible th thoughts. Yeah. But that's where I was. Now I called my friend Linda, and she and I cried and told her about my plight once again, and she said, as nice as she could, you know, she was tired of me calling her up and complaining about this abusive man, and she yeah. said something I will never forget. She said, God isn't going to stop loving you for leaving your abusive husband. He loves you no matter what. Now, I realized that she was right. Hmm. That was when I cried out to God and I said, I would take whatever consequences that would come from me leaving my husband. Yeah. But I had to get out of there before it destroyed me. So the hard part is I knew he wouldn't let me just leave. So my three friends offered to help me escape when my husband went out of town for two weeks in Philadelphia. And I was so terrified he would find out my plans. I, I didn't sleep for months because hmm. I had to save money. I had to get a cell phone. I had to get a place to live and keep it all secret. You know, I lost my job two weeks before the departure. Right. And I thought, oh, no, I don't think I'm ever going to get out of here. And my girlfriend, Julie, said, well, you can stay with me until you get on your feet. She said, if you don't leave now, you're not going to get another chance for a really long time. Yeah. So I pretended like nothing was going on. And I put my husband on the plane and went right to the lawyer's office to file for divorce. Hmm. And I got a storage unit and I put everything that belonged to me in it. And I FedExed the divorce papers to him with a Dear John letter to his parents' house where he was. Hmm. I left everything behind, my house, my furniture. I had my two dogs. When he found out that I left, all of a sudden he, he wanted counseling. Yeah. So I told him it's too late for that. Our, our pastor called me, Pastor Gary. He was a pretty good guy. I mean, and, and he asked me to come to one counseling session as a favor to him. When I showed up at the pastor's office, you know, he was crying. He did apologize to me. When we talked about the many issues in our marriage, it was the same excuses, the same song and dance. And I told him, saving a parting of the Red Sea miracle, I was going through with this divorce. No, I forgave him, and I don't wish I don't wish my ex-husband any harm. I don't trust him. There's nothing there to base a marriage on. Yeah. So we were at the courthouse with the judge to finalize the divorce papers, and he tried to de delay the divorce proceedings by refusing to pay for the furniture that he promised, because I had I left with nothing, yeah. and I needed furniture. I'm not paying for that furniture. And I said, listen, I have emails that state that you promised to pay for it. So do what you say you're going to do. Yeah. If you're not going to pay for it, I'm going to find a way. But the, the marriage is ending today. So yeah. he, he agreed to pay for the furniture, but he tried to stop it. Yeah. The divorce was finally over and I was free to start my new life and pick up the broken pieces. And the next few years were really hard. I, mean, yeah. I lost 
everything just like I thought it was going to. I knew mm-hmm. that was what's going to happen. My church ostracized me because I left my husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My friends took sides. All my friends were at church. I went through eight months of unemployment and then finally bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. I mourned the loss of my in-laws, not being able to say goodbye to them. The first thing that I did when I left was I recorded my solo album, the one that he refused to do all those years. And the long story short of that was he sabotaged those tracks that I had, we had recorded with my piano teacher. And, but I finally completed it. I had to re-record everything and Mm -hmm. I finally completed it in November. So the divorce was 2008. So let's see, that was April and it was, the album was completed in November. Wow. So that was the one goal that come hell or high water, this is going to, this is going to come to pass. I also went to, when you release an album, you expect to go and travel to all these different churches and promote your album. My ex went to all the pastors that, and all the churches that we were a part of over the years and they told them that I had left him. And of course, word got around to every IFB pastor, you know, that, that I, div- I divorced my husband. But Pastor Wendell, he went to Pastor Wendell and said the same thing. And he told my ex to, to let me go. You can't make somebody love you. Yeah. Of course, I'm very grateful for him saying that about me. But none of the pastors would let me come sing at their churches anymore. Mm. I think there were only three that I would ever go back to. Yeah. I got, the second thing I did was I got LASIK surgery and I visited France twice, visited my sister twice. Yeah. I finally found a church that loved me the way I was. That was Hank, Pastor Hank went to the missions academy with me. So he started a church on the West end of town here. And so when I left, I thought, I'm going to go see Hank's church and maybe he'll let me be a part of his church. And they took me as I was. And yeah. I started reading my Bible again and serving in the church. I was experiencing a renewed relationship with the Lord. My ex called over there to badmouth me to the pastor when he found out I was attending Hank's church. And he wanted to tell his side of the story. Thankfully, Hank stopped him and said, I was being accepted at the church just as I am and go climb a, climb a tree. And then there's the dating. <laughs> Do you know where all the IFB preachers are? <laughs> They're on the dating websites. Right. First thing they would want to talk about was sex. <laughs> mentally, un- they were men- some of these guys were mentally unstable. They preyed on Christian women who were vulnerable. I had one guy stalk me for about a year. He was mm. just as controlling and abusive as, as my ex. One of, my, um, one of the guys I, I really liked that I wanted to date, he told me he was gay. Mm. He was a youth pastor in uh, Nevada. So it was really a toxic environment. It was, let's see, fast forward two years to when I met um, my current husband, Brian. He's a musician too. He's got old fashioned values and we have a lot in common like faith, right. music, movies, life goals. 
had gotten the flu really bad one day for came home and I wanted to go crawl and die because I had the flu and he, he already had the flu shot. He came over and, and brought medicine and tissues and cooked dinner for me and then cleaned shoes. And you know, I looked like death warmed over and I felt worse than I looked. <laughs> right. But he told me that I was beautiful and I said to myself, I'm going to get this guy for sure. It was when I fell for Brian was that day. We were married six months in a chapel with my three friends who helped me escape. They were my witnesses at my wedding. Right. Well, my husband, Brian, and I have been married for 10 years. We have identified. It's hard to believe. Yeah. <laughs> but every day I wake up and I'm thinking, like, is this a dream that I get to, I get to be with this man? And Brian has survived some abuse as well. Was another mm. story for another day. But, yeah, so that's... That is my actually. That's actually my Reader's Digest version of the story, <laughs> but yeah, there is the uh, light at the end of the tunnel for me. Yeah, no, that's amazing, and it's one of the questions I want to ask was how did you recover from this experience? And it seems like obviously music was a big part of that, but also just finding genuine people. But we talked at the very beginning of the episode about people not being real and not being true to their circumstances. And it's amazing what a difference being around positive community can do after experiencing so much negative over all this time. I do want to not just tell my story because you've had some really great guests on the, on this show that have some really brave stories. I really do want to share about um, my ministry and how I healed after the divorce I thought that was the only one who went through this abuse in the church. And I found out quickly that, that there were reports of other people having this abuse, but there weren't any real resources that I could find. Of course, the internet wasn't as advanced as it is today. So I tried to start a ministry for myself for domestic violence and abuse survivors. So that's where DSW Ministries comes into play. I started that 10 years ago. So as I've told in my story, I've been a musician my whole life, and I use my music to bring awareness to this difficult topic of domestic violence and abuse. I wrote a song uh, about my domestic violence experience in the church. It's called Break These Chains. Hmm. I've done a lot of singing and writing music and speaking throughout the years. Now, the majority of my ministry now is helping people to heal from this abuse and trauma. And I I found out most churches, they don't want to deal with it. It's such an uncomfortable subject, and it's hard to get any opportunities to share my music or ministry because it's not a sexy subject. Right. So it wasn't until we joined my current church, Red Mountain uh, Community Church. It's not an IFB church. It's a evangelical free. I guess that's what they would label themselves. But that's when I learned about Mending the Soul yeah. ministry. The pastor's wife told me about the group. 
Now, I had gone through some counseling before, which, yeah, it was helpful, but, you know, I haven't arrived in my healing at that point. So she encouraged me to go through the group for my own healing first. Yeah. Now, I was so impressed with mending the soul that I, right away, I trained to be a facilitator. Mm. So this is, this is a safe, confidential, small group where survivors can come and tell their story yeah. and be believed and be supported. So Mending the Soul provides a biblically rooted and psychologically proven abuse healing curriculum. And they train non-professionals to deliver these, these principles in a community-based setting worldwide. And then this is at a minimum cost to to the people that participate. So Mending the Soul goes to places like Uganda, the the Congo, Rwanda, South Sudan, Tanzania, Kenya. You've heard of these places. This yeah. is like war torn. Yeah. They burn entire villages. They rape women multiple times. They Watch their families being buried alive. Horrible stuff. They've yeah. had Ebola forever in poverty. So and we, we send teams down there to go and use this uh, curriculum. And it's culturally relevant. It's not uh, sectarian. So there isn't any denominational stuff in there. The curriculum was developed by the founders, Dr. Steve Tracy wonderful guy. He's a professor of theology and ethics here at, at Phoenix Seminary. So he's also been a pastor for 15 years. Now his wife, Celestia, uh, she supported leaders and families as a professional trauma counselor for 18 years. Hmm. So uh, she developed this curriculum because there was such a great need for help with abuse she had only so many hours in a day and counseling sessions were not affordable for everyone to do long term. Yeah. Some counselors, they don't have the knowledge or experience with domestic violence. We, we do have, there are some great counselors out there that maybe they're survivors or they do have this training, but she decided she could train volunteers to go through the curriculum with the group and start the healing steps to fill this gap. So uh, we do go through a facilitator training. I went through training in person and then I went through online training and we received continuous training. Now I will say we are not licensed counselors. So we work in tandem with the survivors, counselors, their drug treatment center, the doctor, their pastor, etc. So for instance, if you wanted to be in the group, but you, you have mental illness yeah. that hasn't been treated, I can't treat that. I can't, if you're suicidal, I can't treat that. I'm not a doctor. If you're addicted to drugs, that needs a actual professional. So we have limitations, but we do work together as a team. That's the most important part of that is. Yeah. So the group consists of 
four participants, and then two facilitators. So I have my facilitator, Kelly, and we meet every week for 16 weeks, and we go through the, the workbook and the textbook with the survivors for two hours. So each participant gets a chance to share their abuse story, maybe for the first time. Yeah. Uh, now the facilitators go first. So I go first, and then Kelly tells her story. That way you get a little more brave, and when it's your turn, right. then if they can tell their story, I can tell my story too. And the participants, they bond very closely during the, the 16 weeks. And you have to commit to these 16 weeks. It's not, it's not like a Bible study that you can come and go as you please. You Since you bond so much with the people in your group, it's you have to commit to that 16 weeks of meetings. But these groups are for anybody who's experienced any kind of trauma or abuse. I had one gal that came into the group, and she was just taking the group because she was going to facilitate for a halfway house. Hmm. And she told me she never had any abuse or trauma. When she went and told her story, she told me that her boyfriend told her to have an abortion. And I said, wait a minute, back up here. You had an abortion, but you tell me you haven't gone through any trauma. That's extremely traumatic. Let's talk about that. There are separate groups for men and women. We actually have a lot of men that are requesting to be in a group. Hmm. There's actually a waiting list most of the time, but they are separate. So everybody feels safe and sharing. Yeah. But the facilitators, uh, we come alongside the survivors in their healing journey versus from a professional distance, like a doctor, a yeah. doctor, they have to, they have to be professional and, and they don't cry and they don't, not that's a bad thing, that's his role, but we don't do that. We're in the pit right. with the people in the group. We're crying with them. We're being angry with them. We're praising God with them. And we cover every imaginary, any kind of abuse you can think of. We give them tools to navigate their, their new life. Yeah. We have coping strategies. We talk about boundaries. We say, what is forgiveness? Where's God during suffering? Powerlessness? What does an abuser look like? Right. How has abuse distorted your perception of God? That's a big one in the IFB. Yeah. What does the Bible really say about abuse? There are a lot of people in the Bible who survived abuse, who suffered. Right. Jesus, for one. But the, the great part of that is that the groups are free. Yeah. Yeah, there's a cost for the textbook and the workbook, but we want we want everybody to start that process of healing. We're all volunteers. None of us makes a dime off of mending the soul. But I've seen so many lives change. This has changed my life. Mm. This curriculum really works. God has really just really changed how I perceive myself and how I perceived God. I've never seen anything like mending the soul for healing. Yeah. Um, and I've looked. But the you know, abuse is a and healing is a is a journey. You've talked about that on your yeah. show. It's not gonna happen overnight. This 
you you first you got to recognize what is abuse. Yeah. Like my story, I didn't even know right. that I was being abused until I left my abuser. Until maybe at the very end, it's I'm, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> right. But because he didn't hit, you shouldn't have left. That kind of right. thing. And you've had guests on the show with emotional and spiritual abuse. That's more damaging because that yeah. stays with you a long time. You recognize what it is. You've got to admit that it happened to you. The best place to begin healing is with the truth. Hard to admit you're an abuse survivor. There's a stigma to it. Yeah. I'm getting a divorce. I failed at my marriage. That's hard for me to accept. Yeah. And you have to, one thing that's very important with your healing, you have to go through and process your abuse and trauma. Right. The only way out is through. Yeah. So that means you got to go through all the emotions Denial, anger, numbness, fear, sadness. Ignoring it and stuffing it down is not going to make it go away. Yeah. It will manifest in one way or another. People try and numb the pain with drugs, alcohol, sex, work, sleep. Yeah. Now, we all want healing, but we don't want to do the work. Right. And there is work involved. It's messy. Yeah. It's hard. It's vulnerable. And you've gone through some healing yourself. Right. You're in, in your journey. You have to discover coping skills. You have to realize your abuse distorts your perception of God. That's, this is not how God designed the family. This isn't how marriage was intended. This isn't how a church should act. Satan doesn't want us to know the real God. He wants to distort it. Boundaries. If I've heard some of your guests talk about boundaries. Thank, I'm thankful for that. That's many survivors have no concept of boundaries. Yeah. They, so they're they're very vulnerable to repeat abuses. You you've got your own right to your own personal space. No one yeah. should touch you without your permission. You have a right to privacy. You have a right to make choices for your life. Right. And those under your care, you don't have to trust everyone right away. Yeah. I don't give out my trust to everybody anymore. Very cautious. I don't owe anybody an explanation when I tell somebody no. Right. That means no. <laughs> I don't require your approval. I don't require your understanding why I said no. Right. But no, we have to give ourselves some graces. No. Grace isn't just for salvation. Yeah. Grace so, is for everyday life. For people who do want to find out more information about this program and who and who potentially are interested in finding out more, what's the best place for them to find more info to connect with you? Obviously, there's a lot of great information you guys are offering for people to check out. What's the best place for people to find that? Yes, for myself, please you know, contact me, get in touch with me. I will help you any way that I can. My website is dswministries.org. My email is diana at dswministries.org. If you need a gentle, safe place to tell your story, I'm here for you. Certain groups in January, so if you want to be a part of that, but come as you are. Wherever you are in your relationship with God, wherever you are in your abuse journey, that's awesome. 
Yeah, I definitely. Yeah, I love being able to talk about this stuff. And I, I hope that people will check that out and and take a look at least at what you guys are offering. I definitely want to look into a little bit more as well. But yeah, I definitely appreciate you coming on. And I wish we could talk a little bit longer. I got to run down to, to dinner with the family. I've, I don't want to keep them waiting too long. But I really appreciate you coming on and sharing. And I hope that you know people listening will definitely check out um, all this information and see if it would be a good fit for them for sure. Well, God bless you for being on the front lines and having me on the podcast. And I, I appreciate all that you're doing. Yeah, that means a lot to me. It really does. And I, I same to you. We're all trying to do this in our, our own ways and try to do the best we can to help other people. And it's always meaningful to be able to meet somebody who's doing the same thing. So I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.